The Persistent and Nasty podcast is a series of interviews and informal discussions with inspiring women and other marginalised voices in theatre, film and beyond. From actors to activists, we aim to amplify these voices and invite the world to stay nasty. Hello you gorgeous lot and welcome to another episode of the Persistent and Nasty Podcast. Elaine here, how are you all doing? I hope that you are taking care of yourself, enjoying hopefully some sunshine, there's been a lot of rain in Scotland, um, and looking after each other and uh, you know, just being kind to you. Welcome to our first episode of our Edinburgh Festival Fringe Series 2023. I can't believe we're here. It's very exciting. Um, so as most of you will know, we put a call out on social media for uh, requests to join us on the podcast to chat about your Edinburgh Festival Fringe show. But before that, before we'd put that call out, we'd actually been uh, contacted by a few different people regarding their shows. And those are the episodes that you will be hearing over the next couple of weeks. And first up, we have the wonderful Emily Beecher talking about her show, Summer Camp for Broken People, which is on at Summer Hall, and all the details for the show are in the show notes of today's episode. I do want to give a trigger warning for today's episode as the content of Emily's play and some of the discussions that we have around that um, involve the aftermath of a sexual assault attack, and Emily touches on her postnatal depression and postnatal psychosis. So if that's not where you are today, please take a pause, come back. And if it's not where you are at all, you know that uh, we completely understand and we will catch you on the next episode and we send love. We also talk about what it's like to be a single parent in our industry and how we navigate that. And we discuss many different things, how we still need more women on our stages and how vital representation truly is. And as I say, all details for Emily's show, Summer Camp for Broken People, are in the show notes of today's episode. Remember to like, download, subscribe and review the episodes. It really does make a huge difference and gets our incredible guests heard by as many people as possible. Now, we also have the blog um, for the Festival Fringe series as well, although uh, you can submit to the blog at any time. But right now, uh, that's what we are doing. However, we have had our first uh, submission and it is from the incredible Sarah Grant and Sarah is discussing her new book Fat Girl Best Friend which launches this week so details for that are also in the show notes of today's episode. How you can get involved? Well that is also in the show notes and it is basically go to www.persistentandnasty.co.uk Go to the tab, get involved, and all of the details are right there. And talking about the website, if you would like to become a persistent pal or a nasty hero and help support us, we would be so grateful. And um, to everyone who already supports us, you are keeping us going, and that is the truth. You have um, enabled us to be able to have our own website. Um, you continue to help make the coffee mornings happen. 
you help with the advocacy work um, and we can't thank you enough um, you're all just wonderful remember to follow us on social media twitter at persistent nasty instagram at persistent and nasty facebook persistent and nasty you can send us an email to persistentandnasty at gmail.com, which you can find on the website at www.persistentandnasty.co.uk. You can follow Louise and I on social media. Louise is at Ms. Louise Oliver on both Twitter and Instagram, and I am at Elaine Stirrett on Twitter and at Elaine.Stirrett on Instagram. Well, since it's the first episode of the festival series, oh, maybe something sparkling, so... I don't know, does anybody still drink Schlur? Um, it's a kind of grape fizzy juice. Uh, or maybe an apple ties, an elderflower there one. Or you can have a Prosecco. Hey, if you can afford it, have a glass of champagne. Why the hell not? Um, you know, you can always have a lovely cider. And maybe a little soft drink. Or as we say in Scotland ginger or juice depending on what brand of soft drink it is although I kind of would just say ginger for all of them uh, <laughs> you could have a, ooh, a chai latte hot chocolate or you know you can always just have a good old cup of tea sit back relax and enjoy so there's the AI letting us know while it takes all of our jobs uh, <laughs> Um, it is that kind of thing of the fringe of being an audience member to being actually in it is really big. It's a big shift. Are you excited for it? You know what? I think I'm more excited than I am terrified. So that's Great. always positive. Mm-hmm. I think it's really funny. I am um, in lockdown. I found this list that the first time I came to the fringe, I think I was probably like 27. I'd only been living in the UK for like four years um, and not even that two years. And I made a list before my 30th birthday, apparently, of like 30 things to do before I'm 30. Fabulous. Obviously lost the list at some point. Um, And then found it during lockdown when, you know, we were all having a clean out, as you did, because you had nothing else to do. And on that list, number 17, I think, on that list was take a show to the Edinburgh Fringe. And like, it was fascinating because I was a, I was still a performer then. So like, obviously the drive of that was like as a performer, as a performer. And then I gave up performing and became a producer and then got back into writing. <laughs> and now I'm coming up as a producer, a writer and a performer. And yeah. it's kind of like, but almost 20 years later, you know, I'm in my late forties. So I've kind of the dream that I had as that 27 year old. Yeah. Has kind of plugged itself back in 20 years later which is amazing but it, so it, I feel like it's such a gift to get to come up and it's nice to never be too old to reach those dreams yeah that's really dreams lovely that that's beautiful Louise has just joined I haven't we haven't even done the intro yet Louise we were just chatting about the festival and then um, that kind of feeling of coming up when you've been an audience member and um, then you come up to bring a show all I heard was that feeling of coming up, so I wasn't sure what you were talking about. But well, that makes sense. <laughs> Could be so many things. I was excited for a second there. But first of all, it's also it's a, it's a very particular creative high, and I'm with you on it. I'm with you. 
Brilliant. Yeah, no, I'm excited. I Like I was saying, I think I'm more excited than I am terrified, which is always a great place to be. That might change in the next couple of weeks, but we'll see. I, I never know, you might, you might or you might have the most incredible, wonderful experience. Well, all of it is part of the fringe experience, like no matter which, the tired days, the, oh my God, am I doing this again days. Um, oh, that was the most incredible show I've ever experienced. Yes. Um, all of it is part of the Edinburgh Festival Fringe Theatre experience. <laughs> and talking about the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, welcome Emily Beecher to the Persistent and Nasty podcast. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. Um, we are very excited to have you. Now you are here to talk about your show that is coming to um, the Edinburgh Festival this year, uh, August 2023. But before we get to that, we would love to know a little bit about you, the potted history of Emily. The potted history of Emily. I love this bit because I have had the weirdest sort of career trajectory, if you can even call it that. I always say it looks more like a snakes and ladders board than it does what your traditional career trajectory is supposed to look like. Um, so I originally in Canada, I was born in the UK to Scottish parents, actually. Um, yeah, very excited. My grand will be thrilled. Oh, well, post from her grave, she'll be thrilled that I'm coming up to the festival. Um, and then my parents immigrated when I was like four and a half. So I grew up in Canada, um, but kind of always spent time in both. Um, and I trained as an actress in Canada, really random, but I moved to England, I moved to London after having a dream that I moved to London. That was the only reason I went. You had um, the dream and then just moved? Pretty much. I woke up Love in the it. middle of the night with my then boyfriend and I woke him up and I said, I need to move to London. I need to move to London. I went straight back to sleep. He was there like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> and then two weeks later, I dreamt that I traveled, that I traveled on January 15th and I booked a ticket and that was it I just packed my entire life up thought it would be really easy like obviously it's an English-speaking country I'm not I mean the culture shock was overwhelming really because I like I think the language is the only thing really that Canadians and Brits are like like just everything from pop culture was like not a thing um whereas driving culture was and all of these things so I came to London with the dreams, wide-eyed dreams of being an actress and kind of couldn't find my place. Um, I think for lots of different reasons, but fell in with a group of male filmmakers that were very disorganized. And I had put myself through drama school by working as an assistant in an investment bank. So I was like super organized and kind of fell into producing that way. And realized that I was really good at it. I was great at making things happen, keeping everything on track, making sure everyone was fed. That's my number one crew tip. A, a fed crew is a happy crew is my number one rule. And so the I was like, and I okay. both giving thumbs up for getting we're on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, the people. Yeah, feed everyone. Um, and that kind of fell into producing and that kind of led in a totally different direction. And I ended up actually sort of making commercials and promos and stuff like that for about five years. Um, loved it, made some amazing friends. Um, we briefly moved back, my ex-husband and I moved back to Canada briefly and had my daughter there. And I had a huge shock. We split when she was about 18 months and I came back to London and I suddenly realized that I couldn't do my job as a single mom. Like it was impossible. 
And I had a couple of jobs. I had one job where I'd been told, oh, this you'll be perfect for this. Because I was like, what's the deal with like hours? I've got a child. I've only got child care for specific times. They were like, oh my God, all the directors have kids. It'll be brilliant. All the directors were men who had kids, but wives. And they never looked after their children. And I slept in the edit suite with my nearly three-year-old three times on that job. And I was like, this is insane. I can't do this. And so I was a bit like, well, what the hell do I do? I don't really know. So I kind of just took little bits and pieces and didn't really do anything creative. But during that whole process, um, after having Maisie, I had really terrible postnatal depression and postnatal psychosis. And I was really ill for over a year. Um, mine came on a little bit late, but wasn't diagnosed until Maisie was 10 months. And then I had the psychosis when she was 13 months. So I was really ill for a really long time. Um, and in therapy, my therapist was like, I think I just want you to write down your thoughts so that you can make sense of them because there's a lot going on in your head. And so I started doing that. And around the same time, I started, I hadn't, no one had known what was going on with me. I was super high functioning. Everything looked fine from the outside. We're always fine, fine, it's fine, fine, fine. Um, and when I started telling people, all these people who I thought totally had their shit together, because I thought that I was just a terrible mom and everybody else found it really easy and I just sucked at it. And I pr pretty much spent the first year thinking that. But all these people that I was like, hey, there's something wrong with me. This is great. Like, <laughs> I don't suck. There's something actually wrong with me. There's a diagnosis. Um, all of these people started telling me the things they were struggling with. And I just had this huge aha moment and very quickly within a very short period of time, like within a six month period, I suddenly had collected all of these stories. And I was like, I need to do something with this. Now, I have no idea why I did what I did next because my decision was I'm gonna make a musical out of these stories, which I can't read music, I don't play instruments. I mean, I love musicals, but I'm not sure that was the best point of starting. But I think early childhood is really musical. Like every class you go to is like a singing sign, a playing sign, like somebody's shoving a tambourine in your kid's hand or a shaker every time. And I just had that language in my head. So I started writing and I created the Good Enough Mums Club, which really is a musical about motherhood. And it's about five women, very different. Every story is based on a true story or a collection of stories that people have shared with me over the years and that kind of got me back into writing well I guess it got me into writing because I'd never really written anything before and I've been working on good enough for about 10 years now and hopefully very soon we'll be able to talk about a tour that we'll be doing but we have done like a concert and we've developed it on and off but good enough was that first seed of okay you know how to write this could be something and I was about 30 or 35 at the time and I'd never written before and I was like oh this is interesting so then in between these sort of other jobs I would sort of do a bit of good enough and I would do some producing around it and then we would need to take a break because I've got two other great producers on the show Sarah Sheed and Jade Samuels and we were all three single moms all with kids under four like every now and then we'd be like this is a lot <laughs> we need to take a break um and so while that was happening I was still producing and doing bits and pieces. And then basically I was the victim of a very violent sexual assault at a Christmas party. And again, couldn't deal with it immediately. 
um, and we can talk more about this because this is where Summer Camp for Broken People comes from, but basically I knew I needed to write down my thoughts. And so I started keeping a diary once I, basically for a year after it happened, I buried my head in the sand. I was like, I'm fine. It's totally fine. All good. Let's just get on. I just started a new job. I'd only been in that job, I think, for like five months when it happened. And I was a bit like, oh my God, what is this going to do to my career? Like, just shut up, keep your head down. Um, I told HR, but like, I was like, keep it quiet. You're fine. Get on with it. And it was at a party that an agency that we worked with had thrown. And the following December, they sent an email that said, since we all had such a great time last year, let's do it again. And that was just the beginning of the end of me. I just, it was a slow, slow descent. I mean, I didn't have far to go realistically, but it was a sort of slow descent into complete breakdown in the end. And I ended up being signed off work. And so because I had private medical, because I was working for a company, I was sent to the Priory initially as an outpatient and then as an inpatient. But my gut said to me at some point, because I have this incredible diary that I kept of all of my experiences and writing I did at the time and everything else. There was something in me that was like, look, you wrote your way out of the darkness once. You can write your way out again. And so that's how we come to summer camp. And so that's the show that I'm taking up to Edinburgh. Wow. Sorry, I talked a lot there. No, no. <laughs> oh my goodness. Please don't apologize at all. I think, um, I mean, there's so many things in that that I want to kind of talk to you about. And obviously you'd experience and what has led you to summer camp uh, for broken people and um, not good enough mums club. Um, but just before we kind of get into that kind of more heavier stuff, I think <laughs> the kind of first couple of things that really jumped out and me and Louise in particular was like when you were talking about um being on film shoots with men that are unorganized like the kind of the that idea of I know I know so many women Louise in particular who end up into these producing roles that start in a different creative way and I wonder Lou if there's anything you want to talk to about that well it's uh it's interesting all the sort of threads of being a producer and motherhood and like the amount of times I've been on a set or in a room running a creative project and then the producer role kind of morphs into a mother role and then you're organizing for people who really need to be more adult to be able to stand on their own <laughs> so there's something on a, on a in a lighter superficial sense there's something um between connecting motherhood and being a producer if you're a woman um but yeah it's um uh, yeah, I'm just I'm just thinking. Uh, my brain sort of um, digesting everything you said and all of the all of the things that we're undoubtedly going to unpack over the next hour because it touches on so much that Elaine and I advocate advocate for within Persistent and Nasty. And and I just wanted to say as well, like that that phrase, "write your way out of the darkness," is so beautiful, and I think that's going to resonate with so many of our listeners. It certainly resonates with me, and I think as creators and as women, that is a tool that that we use over and over again. Yeah, it's really powerful. And I'm so grateful to that therapist because it's probably not something I would have like just decided to do myself. And actually one of the most popular therapies when I was at the Priory is there's like a regular, I think it's like a Wednesday or Thursday morning creative writing practice. And it was one of the most popular sessions to go to for sure. 
Um, that's something that really surprised me, actually, because at the Priory, I, and the reason the show is called Summer Camp for Broken People is because I felt like I was at summer camp. Because your mornings are all, like, you do your check-in, but then you all your mornings are your creative therapies. They're like the or light therapies or like popular psychology therapies, but they're really creative. And then your afternoons are spent doing sort of like psychoeducational. And it was a really great reminder to me, even though I am a creative person, that actually that act of being creative is really healing. And the way it allows us to use our imagination and to access parts of ourselves that we might not want to look at or that we'll only sort of examine in the dark, we never want to bring out into the light. It was an amazing reminder of amongst all the chaos that actually even normal people, even people that aren't in creative jobs or in the arts, they turn to creativity to process when they need it. And that was really interesting and really lo lovely to see in amongst everything else that in that chaos that, that it had a really solid hold of recovery for people that we don't, I think, think about in the day-to-day -day in our job because it becomes about like being creative specifically for something or it's, you know, it's such a undervalued skill. Um, but it's interesting to me that when people need something, and again, during COVID, not that I want to talk about COVID, but people turn to books, TV, you know, they turn to the arts for sort of companionship and for comfort. And then I found that at the Priory for sure that everybody sort of turned to something creative as a way to sort of process. Absolutely. I don't think it's an accident that so often the thing that overlaps with things like therapy, coaching, counselling, and then the artist's way, for example, like morning pages, journaling, these processes to sort of tap into what it is you're feeling and help you process it and understand it. Um, I think, yeah, it's... You're so right about that. Creativity is is a, and I think everyone's creative. I don't think I think you so often hear people say, "Oh, I can't write. I can't do that." So like, don't worry about that. Just just do. Just let it let it flow through you, and it's it's, it's really extraordinary. I think for me as well, there's something that you said as well, Emily, about when you made um your musical, <clears throat> and the fact that you know, uh, um, when you're at all these toddler groups there's some sort of music there. So from such a young age, as human beings, creativity is right there. It's our expression, it's our, it's our can we, are we moving our body? Can we do all of those mile, milestones? All of those things that everybody is different at, let's not have a, a you know, like, <laughs> you know, all these poor mums that are like, oh my God, my child hasn't rolled over yet. Your child will. It's just yeah, like, like nobody grad, nobody's like, on at their 30th birthday going, oh, I really wish I could tie my shoes. Like, that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it just, it's so, it's just that reminder as, as both of you have just said about how our creativity intersects with everything. And as a society, how it intersects with everything. Um, I think my next kind of question for you is probably going to be about, um, obviously, the musical and where things are going with that. And um, just that whole managing that, as you said, you were three single parents, all navigating all of that, as well as creating this show. And then the fact that it was, it was so uh, well received and now hopefully a tour. Yeah, it's been, you know, uh, it's it's been 10 years this year since we started working on it. And, you know, I love being in these chats where people are like, oh, I've been working on this project for two years. And I'm like, no, hold my beer. Hang on. Like, 
come to me and complain when it's been 10 years. And it's been 10 years for lots of reasons. One, because we were three single moms and that, that like diminishes your capacity sometimes for output. It doesn't diminish your capacity in skill or what you're capable of. But yes, like, yes. But society against you makes things harder. Um, I think, think a lot has changed in the last five years as well. When I originally pitched the show, I didn't pitch it a single time without it being said, why don't you put a man in it? I was like, this is called the Good Enough Mums Club. <laughs> the clue is in the name. But I literally for five years didn't pitch it. And that wasn't the feedback. Once. And once in, in five years, no one said to me, great, can you add a gay dad? Can you, there must be a get dad at the drop-in or wouldn't it be better for the music if you had a male voice? And I was like, no, that's nice that that's what you think, but that's not who the show is for. The show is unapologetically for women, for moms. Um, it's a show ultimately about whether you feel like you're good enough, which is obviously a hugely <laughs> accessible topic. So yes, everyone could see the show. That doesn't mean I'm going to put a man in it. And then a few years ago, we pitched it to Chris Sudworth at Birmingham Hippodrome. Um, and it was the first meeting where I didn't even finish the pitch. And Chris went, yeah, yeah, no, I get it. It's a group. It's a good night out for people who don't usually get a good night out. And I was like, yes, that's exactly what it is. And he was like, right, what do you want? And I was like, I literally got teary in the meeting. He's so professional. But I was like, no one has in, in five years, no one has ever got it. And everyone suggested that I put a man in it. And he was like, no, that's not who it's for. So I feel like Chris became sort of like a huge um, heart of the show because he got it. And then he's really helped us develop sort of who we're working with and all of those other things. But it, you know, the team is almost entirely mums. Uh, the cast is all mums, directors are mums, musical supervisor, compose, new, co new compositions are mums. So we work very differently. <laughs> you know, we did a workshop in February and it was our stage manager's first job back after having the baby. We had the baby in the room with us the whole time. He took his first consecutive steps in the room with all of us there. Um, and she was like, you know, he's now going to think every time he does something, an entire room is going to like erupt in applause for him anytime he does something. It's brilliant. We don't rehearse crazy hours. We don't do, usually don't do six day weeks. Or if we do, we'll break up the weeks a little bit. Like we just do things differently. And I'm a huge believer in the way we've always done it. It's not the way it has to be. And even in summer camp, we had a totally different rehearsal process. Uh, we kind of did like three days, uh, two days, three days, three days, four days, five days um, in rehearsal. We spread what would have been a three week process over, I think, five weeks in total, partly because the material is it's heavy. It's personal. It's about sexual assault, but it's also about kind of the future and where do we find ourselves and where do we find safety? And it's a heavy show, but it's also an incredibly hopeful show. It's a show about empowerment and about strength um, and kindness to ourselves and to others. But it's still a lot <laughs> to spend, you know, the worst time in the worst days of my life, essentially. And so we were just like, what would it be like if we did it differently? No one died. I'm a big believer that nothing, we, we only rehearsed till five. 
Uh, we did sort of 10 till five. I, I believe nothing good has ever happened in a rehearsal room after 5.30 p.m. Like never, I've never had someone come to me and be like, oh my God, look at this amazing thing we created at 6.45 p.m. Like, no, I don't believe it. It doesn't, everybody gets tired. It's a lot for everyone. So yeah, I'm a big believer in doing things differently. And, and for good enough, I think that's meant that it's taken longer to get where we wanted to get to. But I also think we've grown and learned a lot in that process. And so I'm not sure that I trade that off. Now I can say that probably five years ago, I would have been like, I would kill someone if I could get this on the stage. Um, but I do think that learning process has been invaluable and we've been able to do it the way we want to do it rather than the way someone told us we should do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, I think if you've made that compromise just to get it on, which we've all done, I think, I think a lot of creatives have, particularly women, you'll make a compromise that's not, really not what you want, but just to get the thing made. And I think ultimately, I, I think most of the time people can say, I'm really glad I didn't make that compromise. And I think in the, what you've just described, the journey you've just described, I think is particularly acute for that. I so relate to what you're saying about that emotional feeling you must have felt when chatting to um, the Chris from the Hippodrome. Yeah. That feeling of like, it's not just about being seen creatively and like somebody wants to put on your idea. It's more that finally someone who hasn't kind of defaulted to either seeing me or not seeing me at all defaulted to the fact that I'm invisible as is the audience demographic that this is for, therefore dehumanizing me. And it and suddenly it's like, oh no, you do get it. You get that that there's a huge like women and women with children are, are a huge part of your audience demographic and your potential audience demographic and you saw that right away because up until that point I can't I can't imagine how exhausting it must have been just going like am I talking to a wall like what's going on and that idea that we knew that people would want the show but no one else believed us right it was really this I got told moms don't go to the theater that they are a larger percentage of ticket buyers, but they're not the ones that actually go. And I was like, okay, so what shows do you have that represent them? What shows do you have that represent women? How many female-led shows do you have on your stages? And they'd be like, well, that's not really the point. And I'd be like, it's literally the only point. <laughs> like, I don't know what to tell you. 51% of the population should be recognized on your stages. And if you're sort of only putting on male-led shows, which look, still happens, hello, National Theater. Um, like, it's ridiculous. What year is it? Great that there's a new football show on at the National. Really excited that you're trying to reach, on, you know, hoping to pull in that football audience. But can we maybe look at the 51% of people that would love to see a show there and maybe see themselves represented? And The Crucible doesn't count in my book. Like, it's literally a show about women being witches. I'm not sure that that's the, like, leading point that we need to go with when we're doing, like, big female shows. So, yeah, it is that. It's being seen and it's someone understanding that what you're offering has an audience, that there is someone that also wants to see that that's not you. Louise and I were doing. Can we do this all the time? Who's gonna do it? Who's gonna do it? Go ahead, you go. No, it's just it's that thing that <clears throat> you know I've said this many times on the podcast, and Louise, you and I talk about it a lot. Like for me, everyone, whoever you are, wherever you sit in this world, um, like wh whatever a uh, sexuality you are, gender you are, um, color you are, you should feel represented and seen. 
class you are you should you should feel seen on our stages and our screens because that is a whole society we are not just one thing we are numerous different things and that is a beautiful thing and that should be celebrated I mean there are some people that can just not be celebrated but um <laughs> but the majority of us no we, we live in a democracy blah 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 whatever. um been on Twitter. It's not, it's, um, not been, it's not been a good. It's not been a good morning so far. Um, <laughs> I need. I think I'm just gonna have to delete Twitter. It just makes me so angry and Every upset. Every time I get on there, I just despair for the state of the world, and I'm like, that's yeah. not my experience. Like, yeah. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Everybody should be seen and heard, and should be able to go to the theater and go, oh my god, that's what I feel because. I've said this so often because we, if we see ourselves on a stage or on a screen, we don't feel as alone. Yeah. And, and how I think vital is that? A hundred percent. And I think that's something with all of my work is I always say like summer camp shines a light into a dark place, but it's not like there are so many women that have experienced sexual violence or sexual harassment. And if we aren't showing them different types of experiences, then we're failing them. Because one of the big things that has come out of doing the show and this is was really interesting to me so we created a focus group of 10 women who had uh, experience of sexual violence all different ages different um ethnicities different classes everything really really varied group of women and we showed them the show and we kind of went in for they we did some group feedback in the room but we also did one-to-one feedback sessions um and what was interesting that came up in every single interview was that they were so relieved when they saw the show that I wasn't an 18 year old blonde skinny white girl I'm white you can't avoid that but I'm in my 40s I'm like probably like a size 14 to 16 we there was so much misogyny about what a victim is allowed to be and anyone outside that is kind of has their experience erased because people don't want to see it because people want to see sexual assault and sexual violence about as about sex when it's about power and control so people think oh well that person's really sexy like they might get raped but that person is like old and past it so that doesn't happen and and that's not true and until I started sort of speaking about it and I was kind of working through the response that I had as I was more vocal about what had happened to me like some of the things people said to me were just horrific. And I was like, why do we think we get to dictate what the victim's like? And if we feel that's the case, what is that saying to, to other women that have also had that experience? You're just erasing their experience and an experience where you second guess yourself a lot anyways, even if you've lived through, you've lived through it and you're still like, did that happen? What did I do in that situation? You're questioning everything. You shouldn't question whether or not you're the only person that that has been through that or feels like that because you are not a hundred percent you are not but if we don't have visibility of that then it's kind of useless to each other as well and to ourselves so that was something that was really important to me is that when we put the show out there and I have an alternate performer an amazing amazing performer called Charlie Coletta um, and we share the role and part of that is because we both have caring responsibilities um part of that is for mental health reasons I was like I don't think I can come up to the fringe and do a month of this I think it would probably break me and someone else can do it it's fine it doesn't have to be me all the time 
Um, but it was really important when we did that casting, you know, it wasn't a young blonde person that Charlie is also a mom because a huge part of the story. And I guess this is really important to me as well, because <laughs> I didn't want it to be about motherhood per se. I was like, oh, all my work's going to end up being about the same thing. But I originally wrote Summer Camp for Broken People as a memoir. I wanted it to be a book. And I sent it out to lit agents and got some lovely responses. And then one of them's like, I'd like to have a chat with you. And I was like, yes, I'm going to get an agent. Uh, we had a chat. She was like, I think it's a play. I was like, oh, for fuck's sake, I've written a play. I don't want to write another one. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Um, and I thought about it and I was like, OK, maybe. Um, and I handed the memoir to my business partner, Reese, and I was like, read it and tell me what you think. And he came back and he said, well, essentially, it's the love story about you and Maisie. And I was like, oh, now that's interesting. That's different. I've not sort of looked at it like that before. And so that's when we started working on it as a play. And it was really important to me as we went through the process and as we workshopped it, more and more people were like, actually, I want more of that. Because the reality was... I would leave my house in the morning or take Maisie to school in the morning. I'd be mom, we'd pack bags, off we go, time to go to school, da da da, go to school. Then I'd jump on the bus, I'd go to the Priory. And from 10 till four every day, I would be doing this incredibly hard emotional work um, and trauma work to try to deal with everything that I was feeling and everything that I'd been through. And then I'd get back on the bus, I'd go pick her up. Oh, what are we gonna do tonight? What would you like? What story would you like? What would you like for dinner? And I was so mumsy and cheery and broken inside and falling apart. But I think what's really interesting about summer camp is how those two things, how that mask of fineness of everyone would be like, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. I'm not fine. I'm literally like about to go sob my eyes out for three and a half hours and tear apart the darkest, most horrible experiences that ever happened to me. And then at the end of the day, I go back and put that mask on again. And kind of what that meant in terms of what motherhood meant for me. And, and Krista, our director, Krista Harris, asked me in rehearsal, like, what do you think would have happened if you didn't have Maisie? And I said, I don't think I'd be alive. I honestly think having that every day to face up to and have someone who wanted me there every day, who needed me every day, there every day, who was silly and fun was the thing that kept me alive because I was so overwhelmed. I didn't actually want to die. I wanted it to be over. I didn't want it not to hurt anymore. But because of Maisie, I think I had a real reason to get better as well. And so that sort of sense of motherhood but that sense of motherhood is in conflict of what we consider with victims or survivors. I don't like either term, so I kind of flip between the two. They're both problematic for me. But again, it, it challenges that notion of what a victim looks like. Thank you for sharing all of that, because I think it's so vital. Because there is, as you say, there's a misogyny that is put on survivors. Uh, and I'm sure there will be many people listening um, who have experienced similar situations and are hearing what you're saying about wanting it to be over and find uh, trying to figure out how, like what that means without it going the other way that it could go. Yeah. And I think that that's really important that that's said out loud 
that hopefully someone just hears that um, and hears that you move forward. Because I don't know if any of us would ever say it's ever truly over, but it's a moving forward and how we move forward with that. And that you can, like, it's okay to feel joy again and it's okay to feel sexual again and it's okay to feel like like you said like you'll never be over it there's no over it's happened there's nothing that we can do sadly there's no thing we can do where like your memory is erased and you never have to think about the horrible thing again it's part of your dna at some point um and especially as we learn more about sort of like trauma rewiring our neural pathways and all of that sort of information like our bodies are changed and we talk about this a lot in the show as well um like my neural pathways have been rewired and I may never be able to fix that but it isn't who I am as a person who I am as a person is very different now and it's I'm a different person than I was before that point um but I truly believe that we can move past it. It's just uncomfortable for a long period of time. And it's not that I think of it and I'm like, oh, look, that memory is like joyous. It's not, it's a horrific memory, um, but it's not who I am. And it doesn't define me as a person and as a human being. And for a long time, I think I felt like it did. And kind of the amount of therapy, I mean, I had so much therapy. <laughs> But the amount of therapy that I had meant that I could come out of it and be like, actually, this is who I am. And I like this person. And I like who she is. Um, despite everything else, not, you know, in spite of everything else, rather than sort of, despite it, it's not a bad thing that that's who I am now. And I don't think we talk about that side of things either. I think that there is, again, along with this misogyny, there's this idea that you will be forever broken by this. And will I be forever damaged? Potentially, but I don't think that that means that I've lost any value. There's no value attached to that for me. And I think all human beings are damaged in some way. So it doesn't, I can add this to the, you know, to the list of the other things that have sort of battered me in life, but it doesn't mean that, that, that I'm somehow a less than person or that I'm somehow irreparably broken or that I should be ashamed of who I am because those things happen to me and especially things that we didn't choose we didn't choose this to happen nobody would choose that to happen to them so in that case you're kind of just up against an adversary um that you need to find your way through yeah thank you so much for sharing that um like Elaine said I think it's going to really resonate with so many of our listeners and I was really struck by a couple of things that you said um including the the capacity to switch from those those places we go where we're sort of living in the, the really deep moments of trauma and then having to put the mask back on and you know make progress and move forward however small or or, or, or difficult that may be and I'm, I'm just I'm always so fascinated and in awe of the way people can do that particularly women women are masters of that um and I am I'm also just, there's something so, I liked what you said about not really thinking the word survivor or victim are appropriate. So I, I feel that and I think it's like, I'm always, my head goes to like, well, this is something that's done to you. It's done to, it was done to me. 
Mm. I'm not, I, there is a rewiring and you aren't ever the same again, but there is strength to be forged out of that. Yes. Because um, you're exactly right, the, this really dark thing of, of, of um, assault being put through a misogynistic lens that is framed with sex and desire, when you're right, it's about power and control. And then the thing about the self-talk you need to do to understand that you can take that control back. You can take that power back. It's not been taken from you. Um, and it's just the journey of finding that. Um, and I think that's, it's, it's really beautiful that you've arrived at a place where you can make art about it and, and process it that way and share it. Um, it's gonna be, I think it's gonna be a show uh, uh, that resonates with a lot of people. I think that's it's so hard because part of me is like god that breaks me that it's going to resonate with so many people on one level like and then at the same time part of it makes me want to burn the house down and and I think that's something that audience have said that they left with which is great I'm like great I hope you feel that way and and the show you know the show is about, I guess, ultimately that, how you go from one thing to become something else, but how do we change how we believe ourselves more than anything else? Um, because I think there's so much questioning in the way we think about ourselves in those moments, like, could I have done something different? Or, you know, even little things like, you know, we all know about fight and fight, flight and freeze, but there's a fourth F, there's fawn. Um, and fun is like how so many of us respond, like by being nice to our attackers or I was so polite right afterwards. I was like, what the hell are you doing? But it's that comes from that belief that if we're nice to someone, they might not kill us. And, and as soon as you understand that, then you're like, well, why would like, maybe I did like them or that wasn't in my situation, but from conversations I've had with other people, like, well, maybe I did like them or maybe I, you know. I was flirting with them and it's like, whoa, wait a minute. Like that's not, that's not connected to anything that's happened to you. You are completely blameless in this situation, but it's really hard to believe that when so many messages are sent to us from the time that we're tiny children of sort of where that power and control is. And, and I talk about that in the show and I talk about me trying to get over this horrific thing whilst raising a young girl and you know, Macy's gonna turn 14 while we're up at the fringe how do I, how do I put her out in that world? Like, how can I ever be okay with that? And yet I have to be. And all of us every day have to go about our lives as if these things don't happen because otherwise you'd never leave your house. And I think it's so much of the show is about like, how can we find strength and how can we find our power after we've been made powerless? Um, and it was really important to me that we, you know, the last thing I wanted was to create a trauma porn show. That was never what we created. We've been spending a lot of time on audience care as well as the team's care. And I think, look, there are people that make that work and that's fine. But that to me is so one-sided in, in, of an experience. And I would say, I don't think I've ever laughed consistently as much as I laughed when I was in the Priory. The gallows humor. <laughs> was off the charts and I think we all find those moments when you're in the pit of despair actually there's a lot of things that are really fucking funny and you're just kind of like well and that's where the title of the show came from because I was <laughs> I was at the Priory in a group therapy session I'd been there for about 
So I was there as an outpatient and I did like almost two, 10 days, two weeks as an inpatient. And then I was an outpatient again. And I'd been there, I think, for about five, six months at this point. We were in a group therapy session, me and another girl that I'd known quite well. We'd been in together for a while. And a new person came in and one of the therapists said, um, oh, you know, Emily uh, and this other girl, why don't you tell her what it's like? Because it's her first day here. And I was like, actually, it's great. You know, like you can uh, get if you ask nicely, you can get ice cream. They do like chocolate and vanilla ice cream with chocolate and caramel sauce. Um, the food's really good. Like all of us has gained weight since we started because you're like being fed regularly um you can go for a walk in the park like avoid that exit all of these sorts of things that you you know like there's a quick shortcut from this section of the building to this section of the building and I said oh yeah all the creative therapies are in the morning the psychoeducational stuff is in the afternoon everybody likes these sessions I was like it's great it's essentially a summer camp for broken people and this woman lost it she gets up out of her chair. She's like, what are you saying? Did you call me broken? I'm not broken. How dare you? You don't know anything about me. Did you say I'm broken? I mean, literally she turned into the Incredible Hulk. And I'm, I'm so bad. I just looked at her and I went, but we're in a psychiatric hospital. <laughs> and I was just a bit like, well, you're not well, are you? Because otherwise you wouldn't be here. And it was just that moment of, ah, uh, yes, there are very different responses to this idea of that that where we are is a terrible thing and I saw in the end where I was what as I have believed certain things about myself and about the world for 40 years I don't have to believe them for another 40 I have a chance to stop and reset um so yes I was broken but now I'm not and that was a really powerful thing for me to be like how often in our lives I didn't ask for this and I could have equally as happily gone on without this experience in my life, but I am here and I have a choice. Either I'm like, it can ruin me and I can be less of a person or I can change things. And maybe I don't need to believe all of those things. Maybe I don't need to believe that I deserve this because inherently in some way I was bad or asking for it or all of these things that we're told that we are if we experience these things. Um, and actually what happened to me is none of my doing someone else is doing we need to have a conversation about why they thought that was an acceptable experience but ultimately I haven't created this but I can fix it as much as I can for myself and look I shouldn't have to do that work but for me doing that work meant that I'm a stronger I hate that that's such a bullshit thing. I'm a stronger person. I'm not a stronger person. I'm a person who has dealt with something that could have broken them and didn't. But I also think that it's made me more outspoken in a way that I wasn't an outspoken person. I wasn't a sort of political person. I didn't, I was always afraid to speak my opinion and I don't feel like that now. Um, and there's a long running thread in the show because I literally started at the Priory and they were like, let's talk about anger. And I was like, oh, I don't do anger. I don't get angry about anything. Cut to, <laughs> I'm now one angry motherfucker about lots of things and I'm quite okay with that. And I think, you know, I think if you don't want to burn the house down sometimes, then are you paying attention? Because there's loads of stuff for, for us to be angry about and it's okay to be angry about it. And actually that's how things change. 
So that's kind of my invitation is I never want an audience to feel traumatized. I understand the material can be traumatic and it can be triggering. I hope that we've dealt with it in a way that ends up feeling empowering um, and makes people feel, if it makes one person feel like they're actually okay or they can be okay, then I'm happy my job is done. Those 24, 22 shows will have been worth it. It's all just, um, <clears throat> it's the way you're looking at everything and um, phrasing everything is just really encouraging. And I know that people who are listening are going to, ho- will hopefully feel that um, encouragement and that um, way to move forward as we talked about. But I think also there's so many things um, just before we round up, obviously, because I was going to ask you what you want people to get from the show, but you've kind of already said it um, in, in lots of different beautiful ways. But I think there's, first of all one of the things that you said about um uh, when this happened to you you just started in that new job and you had to keep quiet and all of those things and I think in particular this industry and it is across all industries it's not just ours but ours is a very um it's it's one that a uh, these things get allowed to happen and they're kind of just like pushed under and you know we've talked about it before it's this fear of not getting the next job because lots of us are um freelancers and you know all of those stories that we tell ourselves and that have been perpetuated by our industry and I've allowed to brew basically um but I just want like just want to kind of say that to anyone that's listening that is never acceptable and it's never acceptable behavior and if you are in that situation please make sure that you um, are finding what works for you and I think that's a really important thing and I think this is the thing that you're showing people is that there is no one way to quote unquote heal yourself um because that you know like oh you need to do this you need to do that no actually you need to do what you need to do um, but for anyone who is there, we'll obviously put some links um, to organisations in today's show notes. And also um, for when we've mentioned this, obviously, like I was part of um, Federation of Scottish Theatres, hey, Harassment and the Performing Arts Guides. So we'll link both of them as well, um, which our Scottish theatres will be hopefully opting into. I hope so. And look, I know... The Fringe has a dark reputation, right? I think there's a lot of alcohol. There's a lot of emotional people. There's a lot of exhaustion and just questioning. And it's easy to feel less than when you're surrounded by, you know, 2,999 other shows. And and some of them are doing really well and you might not be. And I think it puts people in places where they doubt themselves. But even in that situation, if something happens to you, it is there is nothing you have done to make it happen. And hopefully you know, hopefully more people are calling out this behavior. But yeah, the the way that we work in this industry is often unsafe for for loads of people, for loads of different reasons. And I really believe that a lot of the move towards access is about things being safer for everyone. It, it makes everybody's lives better, not just one person's life better. And I think I feel the same way about speaking up. Um, I, no one is obligated to speak up. No one is obligated. You need to exactly what you said. You need to find out how to take care of yourself. What works for you means try things. And I always say this to people like try therapists. Like I think I went through three different therapists before I found a therapist that I like. Cause it's like, 
for all different reasons. One reminded me of my mom. I was like, I don't want to go and have therapy with my mom. Like, that's not a good thing. And then, and two of them, I was like, oh, I don't know. I'm just not clicking with them. That's all it has to be for a reason for you to be like, yep, I'll try someone new. Maybe journaling works for you. Maybe it actually makes something that you hate with the intensity of a thousand suns. Then don't do it. No, you, there's not a way you have to do just because that worked for your mate then, you know, great. And and same with medication. Like lots of people are anti-medication. I'm hugely pro-medication um, because I've needed it. And, and I've had times in my life where the option was take the meds and be alive or to not take the meds and maybe not be alive. So that kind of makes it a very um, bleak decision-making process. But I also think there's no shame in that. If you were diabetic, you would take insulin. Uh, my brain doesn't work the way it was designed to. Do I feel ashamed of that? Absolutely not. Am I grateful every day for pharmaceuticals? You bet. Like that's just the way it goes. Some people that won't be the answer for them. But I think whatever your answer is, you can't have shame in that. You shouldn't be ashamed of needing help and needing support. None of us are like unbreakable. And just reaching out to someone, even if it's just a mate and be like, look, I'm thinking about this situation, even if it's ambiguous, because let's be honest, lots of these situations are like creepily ambiguous and we're not quite sure where one line ends and another begins. And so that insidiousness can get to you just as much as something very obviously wrong. Um, so yeah, I hope I hope people find some strength and some empowerment in the show. Um, and not literally burn buildings down. Um, there's some beautiful old buildings in Edinburgh. We don't want to do that, but like <laughs> philosophically, let's burn some buildings the down. System. The system. <laughs> the system. Yeah. The system. And I think as well, what you've made really clear as well, although like, you know, your story is about yourself as a woman and a mum, um, it's going to resonate with whoever you are and you've experienced this because we all know that this is not especially in our industry it happens across genders so it's like it's really um and I think what what's really lovely it's about you're saying it's about a story of strength and that's really important um yeah um just remind everybody where they can see you <laughs> yes so you can see me at Summer Hall in the Anatomy Lecture Theatre at 1 30 um every day of the fringe aside from the 14th and the 21st oh so I love that you're doing half with a your other uh, colleague Charlie, Charlie. Um, I think that's so important and really um, just another point that as you've mentioned what we put ourselves through generally in our industry and um, but at the festival as well it's like in a whole other level so to be taking care of yourself I think more people should be thinking about that. I totally agree I had a really interesting conversation with one of the casts um, of for black boys who've considered suicide when the hue gets too dark and we were talking about this this scarcity uh, mindset in the industry of like you can't ever take a day off because there is someone behind you that would do this job that you're doing for like less money they could do it faster they could do it better you, you better watch your back and I'm like I call bullshit absolutely not you will do this job to the best of your ability if you are cared for and if you are well and if you are not well then it, you are not doing your job the best and I think we need to step away from this like having an understudy is a weakness or I should be able to do, you know, 24 shows every day where I rip my heart out and stomp on it on stage and I should be grateful. Like, no, we're human beings. We weren't designed to be repeatedly dramatized <laughs> and which when you're doing these dramatic shows, that's what you're doing. So it is totally okay to be like, you know what? I need to step away. I need to, I need a day off. I need some support. I need someone else. 
Um, I don't know if I've been naive going into it, but it's been an absolutely, I always tell people that do solo shows, you should always have someone in for part of your process anyways, because how do you, you can't watch yourself. It's different being in something. But I think we need to start normalizing sharing roles and sharing jobs that are difficult so that we can all thrive. And that's regardless of whether you have caring responsibilities or whether you know you have access needs or whether you just worry about your well-being. We need to just support each other and then we'll get better work. We don't get better work by running ourselves into the ground. We might give ourselves a medal, but we're not really winning. Here, here indeed. Um, and again, that's just why representation is so powerful and important because the more diversity you see in terms of life experience reflected back at you on stage and screen, then that's more accurate of the world around us. And therefore it would be such a radical thought to build these, um, you know, systems and networks in place to, to have a healthier life, never mind healthier industry. And on, on that point, I feel it's incumbent on us to mention that um, Fringe Central, um, the artists hub run by the Edinburgh Festival Fringe Society, um, is split into two this year. The Arts Industry and the Media Centre will be at Fringe Central in Appleton Tower on George Square and the Artists Hub, um, the other faction of French Central, will be at the Quaker House in the old the Quaker Meeting House in the old town. And that will have a health and well-being focus this year. The Ed French Society are partnering with Charity Health in Mind. So well-being will be at the focus of the Artists Hub this year. So I just thought it would be good for us to point that out and just remind any um, other creatives and fringers who are listening that that service is available to them and they should make use of it. That's what your registration fee goes on. Yes, Liz. And before we finish up, up, Emily, I have one question to ask you. And I know that you have listened to the podcast, so you might know the question that is coming, which is, um, what does the phrase persistent and nasty mean to you? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so we're called it as a, reclama- a, re- a reclamation of words. We love all that. So, you know, persistent, nevertheless, she persisted. Um, the nasty thing when the one across the pond called mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton, um, a nasty woman, daring to give facts. So it's what it, whatever it sparks, good, negative, all of it, it's all just as important. So Emily Beecher, what does persistent and nasty mean to you? To me, it's a rallying cry. It's also something that I was afraid of. I was afraid of being nasty or other people saying, oh, she's a bitch or, and now I'm like, you know what, that's what makes change. So for me, persistent and nasty is what I hope for my daughter. I hope that she is both of those things. I hope she gets in loads of good trouble. Um, And I hope that it means that we can drive forwards change. So if I had a little flag that I waged into battle with, I think it would say persistent and nasty. Yay. We're moving from I've, badges to flags. Yeah, I, I freaking love that. I feel like we're going to direct quote you on that one, Emily. If that's okay, that's amazing. Um, and everybody, I will link obviously tickets for um summer camp for broken people in today's show notes, and uh, all of your social media and all of that. But Emily, thank you so much. I think Louise and I could have talked to you for hours. Um, but uh. We will have work <laughs> of varying different kinds to do. Um, but thank you so much for coming on and joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Most welcome. Been and until pleasure. next time, lovely listeners, stay, stay nasty. nasty.